Webster's Dictionary defines compliance as the action or fact of complying with a wish or command. This is the Compliance Guy. The Compliance Guy. As a healthcare provider or healthcare professional, navigating the muddy waters of compliance can get tricky. And that's why we're here. Helping you mitigate risk while increasing your profitability. This is the Compliance Guy. Now, here's your host, Sean Weiss. All right. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Compliance Guy Monday Coding and Compliance Roundtable. As always, I'm Sean Weiss. At least the last time I checked, I was. No, 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 no. Last, no smile. No, no. Okay, that's fine. I'll just <laughs> go on. We're right, going to let so, it go. want to welcome everybody to the program. Thank you all so much for tuning in, logging on and hanging out with us just for a little while. Uh, I am joined by almost our entire panel. Scott Kraft is still in transit from somewhere over in Western Europe. I know he was uh, in the Mediterranean somewhere. I think it was Greece. And last I checked, he was uh, pinned in at um, Heathrow in London, flying across the Atlantic and landing somewhere on the uh, West Coast at like one o'clock this afternoon. So, Scott safe travels. We'll look forward to seeing you next week, but I am joined by the all-star cast of Stephanie Howard, Terry Fletcher, Christine Hall, and last but not least, Paul Spencer. <laughs> Hi, guys. Good morning. morning. Afternoon. Right. Afternoon. I had myself <laughs> muted. I was over here talking and having a good time all by myself. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm so happy to see everybody. We, we missed being on air last week uh, due to the uh, shortened business week and everybody having uh, travel plans, family obligations, getting ready for uh, Thanksgiving and, uh, you know, just trying to get some things cleared off of our calendars prior to uh, that long weekend that we all had. So with that said, it's good to see everybody here. I know we have a great conversation lined up for everybody today. Um, we're going to uh, start off by talking about the AMA guidelines and their notations, their, uh, their green highlighted boxes, all of these different annotated notes that are provided. But most importantly, understanding what those notes are for, why they're in there, and whether or not there's a acceptance of those by the payers, such as Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services. So yes, yesterday, my good friend, as Terry is so well at doing, pointed out that um, I indicated that we all agree with the AMA. No, I missed the diss. Yeah, it was pretty fun, though. It is a disagreement. Like, Not me. <laughs> I know, because Terry was all excited that she was going to get ready to put on her battle armor, get out her right. sword and shield, and I'm meet me in the, the gladiator <laughs> pit. <laughs> all right, so let's, let's start there, because I know we have a lot to talk about today, because we're also going to talk about evaluation and management guideline changes. Again, this is not a webinar. We're not teaching you how to code or 
document these services. We are talking them. Well, we are talking about the coding, but really we're talking about the coding as it applies to the compliance with these services. So, Christine, since you were the person who gave us this first topic for the roundtable, let's go ahead and put you up top and let's let you start to kick the program off. And then we're going to kind of go around the horn, if you will. Thanks, John. Um, so I'm a self-proclaimed nerd. And when CPT comes out every year, I do love to see the changes. But I think sometimes because we're so comfortable with our encoders and things like that, that we miss all of the great instruction that's added. So like you'd said, those green highlighted new information that they've either moved around or added to additional information. I noticed there was a couple of things that moved from just ENM to the instructional. So it, it now it goes to all the CPT codes. Um, I noticed that we had a lot of use modifier XYZ, whatever it is for this scenario, or don't use here and use here and so much new guidance in CPT. So I just wanted to remind everybody that don't just take a look at the new codes that are coming out or, but also look at the other guidances that have come out as well. Lots of really awesome stuff. And Terry, I know I've been throwing people your way because cardiology continues to have major changes to heart caths and to a lot of the other cardiac procedures that are being done. So just keep an eye on those the instructional informations. And then make sure that you don't rely strictly on your EMR because your EMR may have not added those changes or those updates. Or if you're using an encoder, like, you know, all the other encoders out there, just double check that that instructional information that you may have been comfortable with isn't changed. Okay, soapbox. <laughs> so I have something to add to that, which I think is pretty interesting yesterday getting ready for some training sessions with a large hospital group. Um, I was pretty much asked why my training seemed to include more than just the new codes and the code descriptions. And it was one of those things where, first of all, when I'm doing any kind of education, I don't like to just put bare minimum on my slides. I like them to be a resource because we all know that people aren't going to leave our session and dive into the guidelines, um, especially when we're talking to providers. They're not looking to go back into AMA's website to really see what's in there. So I try to be somewhat thorough with what I'm doing. But I was questioned on that. And, you know, that really took Christine, to your point there, that's the way that I answered that. It's not just that the codes are now different, that they've deleted observation. There's so much in the background that plays into how we can even apply what we're looking at and abstracting from the notes. It goes much further beyond the CPT codes. And, you know, one thing that I'm sure Sean can appreciate is I, I didn't know there was a change. That's not going to be a defense ever because you sign agreements, you sign contracts that say, we're gonna follow the rules, but if you're not keeping yourself up to date on what those rules are or instructions or guidances are, then that's never gonna be a, a defense. It you know, it's so funny. Like we were talking about this on our Terry Tuesday thing. Were you just gonna say that, Sean? Yeah, I was actually, <laughs> and, and Terry, I'll, I'll give it to you here in two seconds. Yeah. yeah, you know, Terry and I, and, and I'll be posting that very shortly. Terry and I did our hashtag Terry Tuesday yeah. episode. 
And, you know, one of the one of the things that we were talking about was, you know, in my role and and Paul and Stephanie, they get to work with me uh, occasionally from time to time on some of the investigations that I do on behalf of the state medical boards that I, um, you know, that I engage in the investigations where we have um, uh, cases escalated to us by uh, Aetna or Cigna or United or the Blues, where there's a suspicion of fraud, waste, or abuse. And, you know, I always, and I don't want to steal any thunder from our conversation on our hashtag Terry Tuesday, but, you know, I always ask people, um, you know, can you, can you share with me how you, when and how you arrived at billing things the way that you're billing them? And please help me to understand that these, you know, whatever you provide for me, whatever you present in writing, that it predates our conversation today, please. You would be surprised how many people, after I've talked to them, they're like, oh, I'm going to send you everything. And next thing I know, it's, you know, I look at, if you're going, I tell people all the time, it's not the crime that gets people in trouble. It's lying about committing the crime to get you in trouble. Keep in mind, that if you're not smarter than the investigator who is going to go and look inside the Word document that you send them, and they're going to see the date stamp and the time that you created that document, folks, that's not a good look. And the other thing you should never say to an investigator is, we've always done it that way. Because the question that I'm going to I'm gonna ask you is, well, when did when actually start was it in 1982 was it 1996 was it 2014 was it right now on this phone call when did when begin all right let me stop there terry go ahead i know you got some stuff to say about this as well well i think when we're getting into and feeding off christine and what stephanie was saying when we're getting into do you know read the directions read what the information says i actually love the green section because it gives some clarity as far as what we're we're doing and i'm just happy they highlighted it for us sometimes you have to go through and figure it out but one thing i would say to our listeners and and anybody watching when you go through and get your new guidelines and this is what i do if this doesn't work for you whatever works for you but i look at my old cpt book and my new cpt book in parallel because you have to see what it was and what's been taken out too. And they don't just add things and revise it. One of the biggest glaring things I was like, oh, I can't believe you took it out, was the chief complaint. They don't have that in the 2023 uh, CPT book right now for ENM. Do you have to have a chief complaint or should I say a reason for the patient to be there? Of course you do. But I think looking at some of the guidelines right now, they're assuming common sense. <laughs> and when, you know what happens when we assume? You have to make sure that you are not just reading the directions, but knowing how to apply these new rules. And what, um, for example, what Stephanie said, well, why don't you just have what it says and put it up on your screen? Well, as educators, we don't want to just do verbatim. Do you know how boring that would be? So we're just not taking it from the book and putting it in a PowerPoint and saying, here it is. Um, if you've ever heard any of us speak, and my the, the funniest person on this whole panel would be Christine. I'm just saying that. She's a comedian in herself. But when you when you look at some of this information, you have to know basically and to let the let your providers know, well, I realize this is what it said for 2021, 2022. 
But now in 2023, X, Y, Z, you have to be able to not only support, but explain what the, the difference is. But a biggest thing right now is that for your credibility, if you're going to bring this back to your physicians and your providers that you noticed, you notice there's a difference, you notice there's an omission. Um, so try to look at it in parallel. And just taking a phrase from Bill Belichick, one of the best coaches in football history, Christine, again, I pick on her, she wouldn't know this. That's football, Christine, just letting you know, um, <laughs> of the Patriots. Do your job. You know, you need to do your job and doing your job isn't just taking codes and submitting them. It's knowing what they mean, knowing how to report it, knowing the rules behind it, and not just CPT, payer rules as well, and start with Medicare and then go on to your contract rules. So let me, Paul, real quick, I want to go to you, right? Because Christine raised a great point just a little while ago about how electronic medical records, right? When, when patients are being scheduled into the system, a lot of times because of the way that an EMR is, is structured, it will use the chief complaint as the reason why the visit is taking place, which leads to a whole lot of confusion for a coder and or an auditor, which I think, Christine, and I'm going to come to you in a moment, I think is the point that Christine was trying to make, which is maybe we shouldn't be using something like a chief complaint, but we should be putting something else in there as a placeholder and then allowing the chief complaint to be captured during the face-to-face -face encounter between the clinician and the patient so that we're getting their own words and that it's not something that's being translated by somebody at the front you know, at the front, uh, uh, you know, uh, desk or on the telephone line. But Paul, let me, let me leave that to you for a minute. Well, I can't tell you how many times as an auditor and actually in speaking with physicians, how often it happens where the patient will give one reason for them being there to the MA and then the MA leaves and the person with the medical credentials comes into the room and we have a completely different visit. Uh, so, I, I totally agree with the uh, assessment of maybe at scheduling is not the best time to indicate what that problem is. Unfortunately, and I only know this because I was on my patient portal on my phone this morning making a uh, physician's appointment that they're usually asking why you're coming in even when you're doing a, uh, a, a virtual uh, check-in or you're making your uh, scheduled appointment without human intervention at, at uh, that point. So, uh, and I I know that there are plenty of electronic medical record systems. We're now two years post twenty twenty one changes in the office setting. We're still stuck with templates from the ninety five and ninety seven guidelines, where uh, physicians are still blowing in a review of systems uh, that still. Yeah in uh opposition to what's being documented in the hpi uh so uh, that, that's a that's a great point that's a yeah. great point hold that for one second i want to sure. i want to stay on task where we're at right now stephanie because i know we have you for just a limited amount of time today um i, I want to go to another point that christine also made which is when we're talking about chief complaints okay the the abbreviation or the acronym of fu okay um you know and and I'm that's not very nice sean just saying and i see that what? every time i audit and i'm i'm a little offended 
it means something very There's different to me as a hockey fan. Yeah, I'll I'll say that. Yeah. Well, hold the hockey analogy for just a minute, okay? But let's talk about, Stephanie, let's talk about the concern with using a generic statement such as, you know, chief complaint, F slash U, right? Or if they spell it out, follow up. What's what's the big concern about that statement? So it all comes down to medical necessity. So a lot of times we talk about the fact that medical necessity has to be there, but then not everybody understands what that means from a coding perspective. So when we talk about medical necessity, it really, to me, I look at it two ways. It's the way that it plays into the level of ENM service and the way that we are able to see the severity or how sick the patient is or how much work is involved in the encounter. It also can be looked at as why was this visit even necessary to begin with? Um, you know, we've had many issues this year alone with um, just different clients that are in trouble with the insurance companies for one reason or another after an audit. And one of the things that I've noticed is that their overuse of their EMR system does have a cloned look to the no. So when you're using macro statements for your history, you're pulling forward an assessment and plan from the last visit or using the same assessment and plan for every COVID patient. And then on top of it, you know, your chief complaint says the same thing constantly or follow up because it's an established patient that's hurting the encounter. It's hurting the level. We can't really see why we're why they're there. We can't really see how sick they are. Um, and it's questioning why they even needed to be seen, especially for repeat recurring visits, um, even chronic chronic management. You know, how many times do we see it say here for chronic conditions or here for diabetes? Well, it's great, but what what's going on? We need some more specifics. It doesn't mean you have to have all of the specifics in the chief complaints, but if you're not pairing it with a good HPI, you're really hurting the encounter overall. Um, and one other thing I want to throw out there, you know, when I teach the boot camp, for example, the ENM boot camp that we do here at NamUs, I like to ask the question of the group: Do you think that an ENM encounter is not reimbursable if it's missing a chief complaint? And there's so many times that I get people coming back and saying, "Yes, that should be denied because there's no chief complaint," which is not accurate. Um, the guidelines have stated before, even they they use the word "should." So it means that it should be there, but from a review perspective, it's one of those things of where, you know, if you want to skirt the line and do the minimum possible, it's fine, but there's repercussions to that. And, you know, like I said, level or visit at all, you know, is it necessary? And that all really begins with the chief complaint. It's the starting point of the note. That's, that's a great explanation. So Christine, Real quick, I know, Terry, it's, it, you're struggling sitting there having to wait your turn, but I promise you're up next. I promise. Okay. So I'm just typing Christine, away here in the chat box because as you're talking, I am, you're preaching to the choir, my friends. Right. So I wanted to talk about that, right? Because when, when we have components of a progress note that fails to provide us with any level of insight or detail as to the rationale as to why the patient's here. And then we get to the assessment of the patient and we have 10, 15, six, five, whatever it may be, you know, diagnoses of this patient. 
Why is that problematic? Because it they're they're not supported in that documentation at all. I mean, I've used the analogy of the splinter in my finger so many times, but truly, chief complaint, splinter in finger, HPI, three days, Christine cries, can't take it out. The exam, she's got a foreign body in her finger. Assessment, foreign body and finger, we're going to remove it. She's going to cry. And she has diabetes, hypertension, hyperlipidemia, COPD. And you're like, whoa, I feel like I was assaulted by diagnosis here. Never saw that coming. Um, and providers have no problem. Even further than that, you've got the plan of care for all of those mystery diagnosis, continue plan of care. What plan of care? Where did all this come from? So I don't think they understand that from a coding perspective, that limits us what we can do. It's frustrating. It's unsupported. Um, it's not a 99214, not in anybody's day. And we're constantly having to have this talk. So... Yeah, that's so, where I'm at. Yeah, no, that's great. So Terry, <laughs> Terry, let me let me ask you this question. So, um, you know, we we get these notes, these explosions that come out of an EMR, right? Yeah. But we look and we see that the reason why the patient is coming in is because it's allergy season. They have an itchy nose. They have itchy eyes or they have itchy eyes, a runny nose and a cough. And now all of a sudden we have 14 pages of documentation that spit out from this EMR. And where I'm going with this is, have you ever been told, and I think I know the answer, but have you ever been told by a clinician that you were sitting with going through audit results and you ask them, doc, or nurse practitioner or PA. It indicates that the patient was seen because apparently it's allergy season. Itchy eyes, runny nose, and a cough. Why do we have 13 diagnoses for this patient? And they've said to you that, quote unquote, my coders have told me the more diagnosis that I put down, the higher level of service I'm able to bill. Can we speak to, <laughs> you, like, uh, you look like an emoji there, Christine. Um, can you speak to the fallacy to. to that <laughs> to the fallacy of that? Yes, and I, I it, what's interesting is we have to kind of roll back time a little bit to 2015 when ICD-10 came out because one of the things with I-10 and I think it's because the hospitals wanted us to do their job, they actually told everyone to put as many diagnoses on as possible on that claim and for that encounter that day. This was not this was not something that coders just, you know, thought of doing themselves, in my opinion. It was something that hospitals were like, add as many as you can. Look at all the lines we have now. We don't just have, you know, four. Now we have, you know, the ability to put in 12. And I'm like, yeah, but what if they're not active? This is how Medicare Advantage plans have been getting into trouble with the risk adjustment because of all these non-active diagnoses that the patients may or may not have had during their their time there or currently for that encounter which goes back to what's going on today not is what it, is it contributory and if it's not then what do you do my frustration right now in auditing especially with the new guidelines which i appreciate the fact that ama and even cms are trying to curb the documentation floodgates but as far as the cut and paste the problem is is that there are still areas of, and I hate to call it ambiguity, but there, it's 
it's gray and it's left up to interpretation. And that is the level four visit. And it's two things that come up every single time the doc, it, where it says two or more stable chronic illnesses. So a patient has hypertension and diabetes. The doctor documents these are currently stable, nothing else. And then for the prescription drug management on the risk side, and they say continue meds. So if a doctor puts that in, in their note, I have got providers that say that is a level four every single time. For me, I'm like, no, it isn't. First of all, that is the, the AMA table is a guideline. It's, it's an outline. Okay. It is, does not mean that if you verbatimly put it in just like that, then you automatically qualify for this level four. I want to know about these stable chronic illnesses. I want to know what their status is, what's going on with them. They're like, but there's nowhere in the guidelines that says you have to have that. I'm like, okay, well, look at this as an audit tool then. And if you're going to be questioned about it, if you're ever audited, which at some point you may be, if you're billing everything a level four, why would you basically just give this minimalistic um, discussion of something without details that you can't support? And also in the Social Security Act, which came from a transmittal years ago on consults, it doesn't matter what volume you have. It matters what the details are and the specifics to that day and that encounter. And so I, well, I get very right. frustrated when people are like, well, continue medicines. That's a four. No, it, not necessarily. I don't want to say no for sure, but not necessarily. Continue meds for what? Why? Why is this patient not getting a refill? Why, why are they continuing that? Why are you refilling? Why, why is there um, no adjustment? Give us some details so that you can support and back up what you do. And, you know, and with regard to talking about volume of documentation, if I'm not mistaken, I think it's chapter three, 30.6.1 of the Medicare Program Integrity Manual that talks about, you know, irrespective of the amount of documentation that your EMR spits out, that's not what determines a level of service. What determines the level of service is the medical necessity. So I want to lead us into a discussion about 2021 EM documentation guideline changes and the 2023. But first, Jonathan Carrier actually makes a really great point right here. And I want to I want our panel to ad address this. The copying and pasting in the assessment and plan, especially for specialists, can be a battering experience. How do you tell what they actually went over at the current visit compared to the last, especially with a chief complaint of follow-up, right? So it, it, it goes back, Jonathan, and that's a great point, right? And, and, and a great question statement, however you were putting it out there for us. It goes back to what we were just talking about, that We've got to have a clear, concise statement for the reason of the encounter, right? We've got to have a symptom, a problem, a condition, a physician-recommended return, something that helps us to begin to paint a clear picture for why the patient is coming into our practice today, right? Now, um, when we talk about evaluation and management documentation guidelines, so Paul, I want to I want to start back with you, okay? So we we are recognizing that both through, and I think Terry through, you know, Terry Fletcher Consulting, Christine through Global, uh, 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 Sterling Global, you all are recognizing the same thing that we're recognizing in our firm, which is, look, we are still finding insurance companies 
two years post the implementation of the guidelines, still auditing on either 1995 or 1997 documentation guidelines. I have an audit right now Paul's working with me on where they are demanding a significant amount of money back because they're saying that the providers failed to document the necessary elements of the history and exam. Well, last time I checked, Paul, we're no longer documenting elements. We're no longer being counting elements, right? It now talks about a clinically appropriate or clinically relevant history or exam. Now, as an auditor educator, and I want to come to Terry and Christine and Stephanie as well after you, Paul, think about this. As educators, how are you explaining this to providers? Well, it goes back, you know, I keep, I, I hate to keep bringing up his name, but I mean, uh, you know, here, here we are back with uh, Dr. Larry Weed again, you know, and, you know, it, what are you putting in your documentation? Is it succinct? Is it uh, focused on the condition at hand? Is it, you know, it, and the language does talk about a medically appropriate history and a medically appropriate examination. And, you know, we, we uh, make the uh, rhetorical leap that it is uh, based on the chief complaint, but, uh, you know, we have, uh, you know, one of the issues that we deal with as far as me medical records and electronic medical records is the fact that we have a very vanilla training standard when these EMRs come into a practice that have lingered for years and years and years. And the only time Such you a great really, point. They, the only time they really want to make a change to the standards uh, in an electronic medical record is if they're making an EMR change. And I've seen this, I hate to pick on Epic, but I'm in Wisconsin and they're right down, they're an hour away and they make a convenient target for me. Uh, whenever there's a change to Epic, there tends to be this uh, issue with the active problem list. You know, one of my least favorite terms in uh, a medical record from the old EMR and how we transfer that information over. And my uh, answer would be, well, you know, let's take a good look at that active problem list, uh, active being in air quotes most of the time. Because in many cases, that active problem list has about uh, 10 to 15 conditions that have long since passed their expiration date. It's hoped that acute conditions such as fractures and lacerations are not lasting six or seven years. Uh, you know, I, I've dealt with one cardiology practice in the past who had 20 years worth of echo results as part of every single encounter that came in, you know, and uh, it's not just a matter of documenting for the level of service. There needs to be within every organization a thought process that says, what type of information do we really want to archive? How often do we want to archive it? And what what are our standards for controlling the flow of information into that medical record? Because it tends to be a liability issue if it's not updated in a proper fashion somewhere down the road. That's right. Real quick, Terry, I want to come to you on this. You know, you're, you, you do a ton of audits, not only yeah. for providers, but you also audit for the payers as well. Correct. And, you know, I, I don't, worry about the findings that come from you right you know I, I know if regardless of who you're auditing for whether it's payer side or provider side 
your audit results are going to be, you know, pristine and they're going to follow the documentation guidelines. They're going to follow the requirements of what the carriers have, you know, as published policies, et cetera. When you are seeing providers who are still giving us these huge histories and these detailed examinations that look like it's still coming straight out of an EMR system. How are you and what are you educating them to from a documentational standpoint as a go forward? This is a great question because the guidelines currently an AMA for 2021 and then into the new 2023 only says there has to be a medically appropriate history and or exam. And there's no definition of what that is. It says that it's based on what the physician thinks. Well, okay, patients coming in with chest pain and a doctor does an ankle um, exam. If that's what the doctor thinks will help that doctor, who are we to argue? I mean, we know from, again, a common sense perspective, that's probably not appropriate, but it doesn't say that anywhere. So an answer to your question, when I do see that many providers are still deferring to, or I should say referring back to the 95 and 97 history and exams, I don't blame them because we're not getting there. At least they have a prompt. And that's the one thing with providers. I think most providers want to do things correctly. And they're like, just tell me what I need to do. I mean, I don't know how many times, you know, Stephanie, Christine, Paul, and even you, Sean, I'm not sure how involved you are in audits versus um, tackling the legal perspective. But how many times do we get them saying to us, just tell me what I need to do. Uh, you know, you don't have to train me or anything. Just tell me what I need to do and I'll do it. I get that all the time. So I have to create based on, again, past exam guidelines and say, okay, so this is what the 97 cardiovascular exam was, or this is what the GU exam was or GI exam. And I'll say, however, you don't have to worry about having three elements of the past family social history now to get to a level four or five, or it's not going to negate you all the way down to a level two, just because you don't have that. Make sure that you have, and I put it, the bones of what you need for your specialty, that's a specialty physician, and then add anything that's pertinent to today's encounter based on what they're coming in for, that medical necessity and that complaint. So I actually don't discourage completely using the old templates for exams. Histories, I, I'm just like, please just do what's pertinent because yeah. that gets a little crazy. But the exams, I'm actually almost encouraging the template information as long as it's problem pertinent because they don't have any direction. There's no direction right now about what's, you know, clinically relevant, what's, what's part of that uh, exam. They just say whatever the doctor thinks. And for AMA to do that, I think they're opening up a can of worms because what is, what are the, what does CMS look for in this low hanging fruit of ENM? You know what they look for? That's right. They, they look for um, bad faith. They look for anything that they have an opening to say, well, that's not right. Um, recently, and then I'll, I'll go to the next person. There was something that came out and I think it was behavioral health and um, somebody can remind me the whole thing, but there was an audit that came out where a doctor's practice, and I think it was also a health system. Um, they had to pay back a ton of money because they did not act within the spirit of the rules. Wait, what? So it wasn't a black and white, um, you know, sanction. They said that the spirit of the rules meant this. So to me, CMS is now taking liberties with what, how they're interpreting certain rules and saying, you should do it this way. And I'm reading the rules going, well, I didn't interpret it that way. 
how are you basically holding a physician responsible for something that isn't clear within your policy? It's just the spirit. So that's what I, you know, I'm looking at from the 2023 rules from the 2021 is the spirit of the exam and history. What does that mean? You know, so I don't know. I'm, I think that's going to be our biggest downfall is what is a, you know, appropriate history and exam because there's nothing out there for a standard of care. Well, Terry, I, um, I borrowed something <laughs> that a good friend of mine, Doris Branker said, um, when I'm sitting down talking with providers, I'm asking them, walk me through this. Tell me your thought process as you're, you're going through the HPI and we're reading it together and the, the physical exam. So then I'll kind of paraphrase. So you're telling me in the physical exam that what was important was looking at Christine's finger and there's the foreign body in there, but you examined all the other things and did the pap smear and the rectal exam because that's good medicine. Now realize that we don't count that when we're looking to level up the, the reason for the visit. I mean, that's great that you felt you needed to do that, but we're going to stick with the reason for the visit and what you actually examined in the visit. So sometimes, I mean, you know, maybe not that flippant because let, I'm respectful, of course. Let, let but me, let me just, the, yeah. the idea. No, I'm sorry, the, the rectal exam visualization for a splinter in her finger just really just set me off. Sorry. But you see it. So, it's, so I know, me, I do. Let me, let, let me just say something real quick, okay? For any, so for anyone listening who has never been a testifying expert in a federal civil or criminal matter, when documentation, and I'm talking from a defense counsel standpoint, when documentation is put up onto a screen to explain either to a judge, if it's a, if it's a bench trial, or if it was a jury, trying to explain to them that a patient presented with a knee pain, right? But yet it became relevant to perform a rectal and or pelvic exam on a patient. I always try to help defense counsel before we ever get into the courtroom say, listen, we got to be careful with what we put up here because if we open the door for on cross-examination and we talk about how this is a relevant physical examination, under cross-examination, if counsel says to me, Sean, can you help me to understand how a rectal exam and or a pelvic exam would be appropriate for a patient presenting with knee pain after, you know, playing front yard football on Thanksgiving, I'm not going to be able to explain that to anyone. And I need providers to understand that if you get put onto the stand, it's game on. And you will be asked the same questions. Stop cutting and pasting. Stop carrying forward, you know, carrying forward information that doesn't need to be there. You need to reprogram your templates so that you're not just dumping in all of these body areas, elements, organ systems that are irrelevant. Customize. If you want certain things to be on there, customize for the reasons why patients are coming in and eliminate the noise, eliminate the chaos. Now, we had a couple of other things that I wanted to talk about. So real quick, um, I want to talk about the 
the Medicare position that differs from the American Medical Association with respect to multiple same-day hospital visits for the same condition or when a patient goes from the emergency room or from the office into the inpatient. Stephanie, you want to you want to tackle any of that real quick? Yeah, so um really quick on that, are you just talking about when when their issues lead to different patient settings? Yes. Okay. All right. So the biggest thing, first of all, is to remember that the work of the provider at every level has to be documented. Um, this is one of the things I've currently been talking about during training sessions with providers that really are leading from, from the audits as well, not only going into 2023, but you know, when we look at documentation and everything we've just talked about with what I, I refer to it as a point and click documentation style. If I can't see what's happening outside of what you clicked in your EMR, I don't really know what's going on. So if we just think about even the situation with a patient starting in the office, a lot of times when I verbally talk with providers, they'll explain all of the work that goes into the decision of going to the emergency department and what they do from there. Um, a lot of that involves following up with phone calls to And then we also have the elements of, you know, from there, sometimes with my mental health providers, they'll call the ER throughout the course to see what's happening. Uh, and all of the work involved at each of the levels is what's going to be necessary. Um, Sean, can you hear me? I, I see that I've got some feedback yeah. here. Yeah. Okay, um, in and out. We, um, we can, yeah. Finish what you were saying, and, so, and, and then I'll, okay. yeah. All right, so the gist here is we've got to know the work involved at every level, but then from there we have to know from a billing standpoint what you're even allowed to bill for. You have to be careful, um, you know, throughout the course of each, if we think about all the way through admission, are you personally involved in that admission that started in the office? Um, so documentation number one, work involved number two, and then how we're going to apply all of that work to billing, um, which I'm sure others on the panel can jump in here. But um, one of the things that comes to my mind too is providers wanting to um, count all of the time involved. You know, if they're involved at different levels of a patient going from setting to setting, we've also got to think about the personal amount of time of that provider. Yep, great point. So Christine, let me come to you. Oh, I was going oh, to piggyback real quick off what Stephanie was, was getting to. I, I do think that when you have providers that are using MDM and time based on what's most beneficial for that particular encounter, it's going to be difficult to explain to those providers that, okay, in the office, we're going to use MDM. And then when you're inpatient, we're going to use time. But then when you go to the ER, don't use time, only MDM. And I think we're going to have to really work with our providers so that they can truly understand that change from MDM and time reporting. It's going to be challenging. It is. So Terry, let me come to you and, and let's talk about these, these multiple uh, uh, conditions, you know, and, and yeah. these multiple site of settings. 
Yeah. So um, let me put that aside for just a second, because I want to actually talk about prolonged services, because this has become such a problem. So when we talk about the conflict in payer and Medicare is clear, they're just like, you know what? Right now, I think AMA is a little nuts right now. So we're going to create our own code. And it would be so nice to be able to do that. So basically, they're saying we don't agree. Think about consults. They're like they haven't given enough direction on people doing it right. So we're not even going to recognize them. Then we get into prolonged services, which I find actually not amusing, but in funny way, but amusing into, to me where I had very rarely did I have physicians coding prolonged services prior to the level five add-on code. So the fact that it's such a topic right now is, is crazy to me. But AMA says, so CPT says that once you've hit the minimum time threshold in a level five visit and you've added that 15 minutes, now you can add on that 99417 code. And Medicare says, what are you talking about? There's a reason we have thresholds. Once you hit the maximum time of the complete time element, then you can, and 15 minutes beyond that, then you can add on our G code, G, we're watching you, so that we can see exactly what's going on with that patient, which to me, that's common sense. Why give a code a threshold if you don't have to complete what that time is to get to there? You have to do it for every other code. So where's the exception? I don't understand uh, AMA's vision on this uh, with the one code. I mean, to me, from just a compliance standpoint, you're going to have a lot of explaining to do if you try to bill a level five um, established patient visit and then also an additional uh, add-on for 75 minutes. There, you're you're going to have, or, you know, you're going to have a really tough time or with a, a payer saying that that's okay. Um, and even if a commercial plan that they say, well, we follow Medicare guidelines, don't forget that. And so there's a lot of things that I don't think AMA really, I don't know, walks through because I listen to their, obviously they put out their own webinars on this and I listened to them and, and they were basically complaining about Medicare saying that we just don't understand why they're not in line with what we're doing here. And I'm like, because it doesn't make sense. <laughs> I mean, I don't know if anybody else, Paul and Christine, I know you're saying they're going exactly. I don't, I don't understand why they did that level fives on the minimums because it it's, makes no sense it's like to I, I said terry um let's see i saw the patient for 74 minutes at a 99215 or 75 minutes for yeah. a 99215 and a 99417 hmm let's see yeah, that makes no sense to me for an additional minute yeah i i just don't understand why when we get into time issues that that's that's going to be a problem well and then the thing that they just came up with now back to sean's question for the hospital for the um for the 2023 rules. And I'm trying to remember where it was, but there's a guideline. I'm still going over it over and over again. There's a rule for some of the nursing visits and some of the inpatient visits on when you can add a, a prolonged time code, but there's some visits that don't have a time component. So when can you add it? If I think it was the staff time where you can't, oh, here it is. So you can't add, if you're going to time your visit, it says it can only be timed by the provider that is providing the service, right? Well, then why are they giving you a staff code to add on to a level five if you can't add that staff time to the visit itself? It's not just the level five, though. I know. It, it's, it's, it's all it the makes levels. No sense. All the levels. They're saying, okay, well, here's an additional um, staff code. So in CPT, it's 99415 and 416. And it's like clinical staff service beyond the highest range total. And I'm just like, wait. 
why is that there when clinical staff time doesn't count for the original um, code? So what are you is doing? Addition? <laughs> is it like it, it's too, I know. there's not enough guidance there. It, it, that one scares me. It does me too. I don't even encourage to use it. And that's where I get some backlash where they're like, well, if it's in CPT, we can use it. Not so fast. So, so along with that I, I too, want... Terry, what I, what I get questions on is whether or not clients can use um, codes like that for staff that are doing like prior auths. Oh, but geez. what they have to be careful of is that's not their clinical staff typically. It's their front office staff. So that's one those of those green codes changes, really Stephanie. Me. Yeah. Stephanie, that's okay, one of those green changes that they moved from exclusive. They made that very clear who was clinical staff in the mm. CPT introduction area that nobody ever looks at, let's be honest. Um, and they did make that distinction of clinical versus administrative. They did, which I appreciated that part, but you're right. We get, there's the doctors um, are trying to use a definition of it's still related to medical care. Why can't we use that information? But I try to tell people to stay away from those codes. I think it's just opening up a can of worms. So let me, let me jump on this. So a couple of things. One, the, the office of inspector general has put a big focus onto prolonged evaluation and management services, right? And what we're talking about is specifically um, the Medicare, the, the Medicare Claims Processing Manual, Publication 100-4, and it comes from Chapter 12, Subsection 30.6.1.1. Uh, 30 and what the Office of Inspector General specifically says about prolonged services is that the necessity of prolonged services are considered to be rare and unusual. Folks, I've had audits over the years where providers, uh, Paul, Stephanie, you probably remember this since a couple of years back. We've had providers where every single service when they hit a 99215 they automatically added prolonged evaluation and management services to it and i can't make this up i asked the physician one time as we were prepping the case and i said why is it that you're adding a prolonged anm service onto every single 99215 that you build and i can't make this stuff up the response that i got from this provider was because there's no such thing as a level 6 <laughs> that's a great response literally though. that was <laughs> it, 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 i love that it's a great I response gotta give the individual i gotta give the individual a lot of credit for that because you know it, it it was very it was very creative there is no level six and they were dead serious but you know remember once something is on the oig's radar it's on there because it's also on cms's radar and you can guarantee if it's on CMS's radar, it's on the commercial payers' radar. So, folks, listen. Use prolonged evaluation and management services when they are reasonable and appropriate. But keep in mind that they should only be used in rare circumstances. The best way Go to ahead, get a pause. doctor to not understand that is something. basically say you're going to shadow them. Well, yeah. I, 
I have two egregious examples uh, from uh, the the somewhat distant past, but I, you know, when consult when consultations were first wiped out by CMS, I had one neurologist who decided that he was going to make up the revenue he was losing on consultations by billing nine nine two one five with prolonged services, uh, you know, without the time documentation. So that was not going to fly, and I uh, had a good. Uh, proverbial slap of the uh, hand with the ruler on that one. Then I had another doctor who uh, was uh, from your part of the world, Sean, who uh, had had a stroke and started billing 99215 because of the time it was taking the physician who had a stroke to perform histories and examinations for that patient. It's like, no, that's not how we oh, use that. Oh my God. You know, really? so yeah yeah uh yeah so uh anytime you open the door a little bit uh for anything uh in life uh somebody is going to try to kick that door open and find a revenue opportunity and uh prolonged services even though the code exists and even though it has been clarified and clarified and clarified it is fool's gold i wouldn't touch it with a 10-foot pole well, and can we say that loudly to people who are doing telehealth? Stop. Okay. Just stop. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so I that. put it up here for yeah. I put it up here for anybody who is interested. This comes directly from the uh, Department of Health and Human Services, the Office of Inspector General. This is the section on prolonged uh, services and the reasonableness of these services. And as you can see, the necessity of prolonged services are considered to be rare and unusual. All right, so let me stop sharing that. All right, so let's let's go around the horn real quick. And Paul, since I have you up in the center screen, I know there was one other aspect that you wanted to talk about. So we have about seven minutes left. And I want to make sure I give everybody their turn. You had raised a, a question to me yesterday about uh, monitored um, uh, telemonitoring, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah. Go ahead remote and talk patient. about that real quick, yeah. if you would. Remote, uh, well, potion, remote yeah. patient monitoring. Yeah. So uh, I attended the AMA symposium. Again, we're still virtual uh, because uh, the AMA is a bunch of doctors and they want to keep everybody safe. Uh, and I was struck by the number of additions to remote patient monitoring uh, that's that are going to be added in 2023. And this comes on the heels of the... Uh, public health emergency coming to an end where we have had kind of a, a, a severe loosening of telehealth uh, restrictions uh, as it applies to uh, what needs to be documented in a note in order for telehealth to be satisfied. And the OIG saying that even with the loosening of those uh, restrictions, we're going to have telehealth services on our radar because we still suspect that they're not being documented properly. Uh, you know, we're, I'm, I'm a futurist by uh, trade. I, I like uh, embracing things that uh, uh, bring forth technological change. Uh, you know, I, I'm still mad about the, uh, you know, jetpacks not uh, being readily available for me to go to a Brewers game instead of jumping onto I-94. But uh, remote patient monitoring and the expansion of those services is enormous. Uh, and I think we're going to be seeing a lot. I, it's, it's uh, it started with a little bit of a trickle, 
And now the dam has broken a little bit. I have a 56 page presentation that uh, was given at the AMA symposium, just focused on remote medicine and remote patient monitoring. Uh, it's something to keep an eye on. Terry, let me come to you. Great, great job, Paul. Um, Terry, let me come to you. I, I want to talk about the uh, addition of hospitalization to the low-level presenting problem elements of 2023. So give us give us your take quickly on what's going on there, please. Well, they, the, they mean AMA, they added a entry in the number and complexity of problems addressed element of medical decision-making, and it's under low, which really surprised me. And right after acute uncomplicated illness or injury, it says that requires hospitalization. And I was like, wait, hospitalization is considered low medical decision-making. So the only example that I've been able to find from that was from our good friend, Betsy Nicoletti, who said something to the effect that maybe the patient shows up for an IV infusion in the office that day and and they, or they need one and home health isn't available. So they have to take them to the hospital um, as an outpatient, and that would be low level because it's anticipated and they're there for that. That's the only thing I can, that she actually came up with. And, and I think she also had a confusion on that too, but because they put that kind of, um, episode or episodic care in low, I think it could definitely change a little bit of the platform when somebody's, when the doctors are automatically wanting to go to moderate, no matter what, because, We've had, we're getting a, even though we're getting a reduction in our calendar year um, conversion factor, EM services are jumping. I don't know if anybody's seen that as far as RVUs. They're jumping Absolutely. by a lot, especially hospitals. Especially, but yeah, I was going to say inpatient, especially. Inpatient, because yeah. it's now inpatient observation, but they're jumping. I mean, an average, I average it out almost 27%. So that that's going to be interesting when, when you look at some of the um, elements needed to meet a level of service. Awesome. All right, Stephanie, I'm coming to you for your par parting shot. What are you focusing okay. on and what are you watching closely? So I think, you know, just wrapping up a little bit of everything we've talked about today, when we think about changes coming in 2023, um, we've got to start thinking now about how we're going to apply it to these other patient settings. Um, when we've talked about lack of detail and documentation um, with what Terry's talking about with level of risk, with decisions being made during an encounter. One of the things I can't help but um, going to in my mind is the emergency department. There's so many times already up to this point where different patient settings, or even if we think about initial inpatient admissions, there's so many times providers want to jump to the highest level in their code category, but we're going to have a major shift coming up where, you know, presenting problems, for example, are only half of it or the lack of detail that you decide to put into your documentation is going to greatly hurt our ability to go to high level severity in the first column. So, you know, as we go through weekly, the different roundtables and whatever it is you're doing in your own um, world, as far as education and getting ready, um, we have to be prepared and really think about how it's going to impact because I do expect to see a shift and I expect to see a lot of issues if the coding remains the same without changes from the documentation side. Excellent. All right, Christine, I want to come to you for the final parting shot on remote physiological or therapeutic monitoring. What are you watching there and what do people need to be aware of? Well, this kind of takes us full circle there, Sean. 
um, there were some changes to the instructions to the remote therapeutic monitoring. And I, I expected to see those because it was so new that they added those green new instructions. Um, but I also wanted to remind people that last year we had a lot of instructional guidance changes for some of those other chronic care management, physiological management, um, the, those types of procedures that have multiple elements that need to be documented in order to support those codes. So, you know, taking us all the way back, please make sure you're taking your books side by side. You're looking at the changes that were added last year, the changes this year, um, and that you've implemented those into your practice. The, the right. absolute most important book you can buy, CPT Changes and Insider's View. I have a few uh, years of them worth, years worth of them. But they uh, haven't right released here. the new one yet. They, they have not. Uh, and they made a point that it's going to be coming out in a few weeks. And they also made a point of stating that there will be some CPT errata uh, updates mm -hmm. as well. Uh, and in the same way that we saw technical corrections in the office in March of 2021, after the office E&M services are out, I would not be surprised at all if sometime in the early to middle spring, we have some type of technical corrections document for all the other places of service, uh, because it was uh, quite the change. All right. Thank you, Paul. Thank you to Christine. Thank you to Stephanie and to Terry for joining this Compliance Guy Monday Coding and Compliance Roundtable. Uh, we will get this thing out onto the podcast. Please check the descriptions for how to get in touch with Terry Fletcher and or Christine Hall or Paul Spencer, Stephanie Howard, myself. In the description, I will make sure we have links to their websites so you can engage with them in further dialogue or if you have any auditing, compliance, or just general question needs. All right, Terry and I uh, have completed our hashtag Terry Tuesday. I'll get that posted here in just a little while. I'll be back tomorrow, Wednesday with a daily dose. So until then, remember, be good to yourself, but more importantly, y'all be good to each other. Take care. See you next Monday. You've been listening to The Compliance Guy. Sean has been doing this for 28 years. He holds 10 national board certifications. He's a partner and the vice president of compliance for Doctors Management, LLC. He's a subject matter expert in federal court. He's lectured at the most prestigious institutions. He's engaged with members of Congress in both chambers. So what we're saying is he's qualified? We hope you've enjoyed the show. Make sure to like, rate, and review. And we'll be back soon. But in the meantime, you can find us on social media at The Compliance Guy. See you next time on The Compliance Guy.